In the late 20th century, a group of strangers gathered in a small, crowded house in Texas. Ceiling fans whirred and folding chairs squeaked as a respectful hush filled the room. The crowd was diverse. People from all backgrounds who carried unique burdens. And they'd all arrived for one reason. To meet a psychic healer called Max. In the center of the room, Max sat on a colorful, beaded blanket, inviting the downtrodden to line up to see him. But Max wasn't a person. He was a crystal skull. As people approached Max, they knelt. Many clasped hands in prayer. Some even kissed the skull as tears ran down their cheeks. They sought guidance, healing, and spiritual wisdom. According to an ancient legend, Max possessed paranormal abilities. Those who interacted with him heard voices that delivered kernels of wisdom or received visions of the past, present, and future. Others said Max cured them of their afflictions. And the crystal was said to have even greater purpose. Supposedly, one day, Max would join forces with 12 other special skulls, and together, they would reveal mankind's destiny. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a one-part episode on crystal skulls, life-size heads carved from quartz rock that have been found scattered about the world. Those who interact with the skulls claim they feel powerful energy or receive telepathic visions and messages from the universe. Today, we'll follow a real-life Indiana Jones into the jungles of Belize to find the Skull of Doom. We'll also explore possible explanations for the skull's psychic abilities and attempt to uncover who created them and why. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The Yucatan jungles are thick, hot, and full of predators. But for a 42-year-old English adventurer named Frederick Mitchell Hedges, the land promised fame and fortune. Frederick may have been the real-life inspiration for Indiana Jones. In 1924, he sailed from Liverpool to Belize to search for the legendary lost city of Atlantis. But when his team arrived, Frederick ran into one disaster after another. His medical supplies sank into the river. Crocodiles blocked large portions of the Rio Grande, and one team member died of malaria. But Frederick's misfortune came to a swift end. While hacking through the Yucatan jungle, one day, the adventurer found a hidden city underneath the moss and vines. It wasn't Atlantis, but a Mayan metropolis called Labantun. Frederick spent many months in the ruins working with local Mayans to clear away the plant growth and to begin crude excavations. He later wrote about Lubantun in his memoir, Danger, My Ally. In the autobiography, Frederick described the ruins, which included pyramids, palaces, and a 150-foot-tall citadel. And he wrote that he'd unearthed thousands of Mayan artifacts, including one mysterious item— the Skull of Doom. The life-size head was made of pure rock crystal. The Mayan locals helping with the excavations told Frederick the skull was at least 3,600 years old. At the height of the Mayan empire, the high priest reportedly used it for so-called death ceremonies that were as terrible as they were awe-inspiring. Frederick alluded to the skull being supernatural in nature. If anyone scorned or laughed at it, they would meet a sudden and inexplicable end. Despite these bold claims, the adventurer refused to say how the artifact worked or how he discovered it. Thus, the mystery of the Skull of Doom began. Frederick died in 1959 and passed the head to his adopted daughter, 52-year-old Anna Mitchell Hedges. And Anna finally provided answers about the skull's origins. According to her, she was the one who found the skull at Lubantun. On her 17th birthday in 1924, Frederick and his team lowered Anna into a hole in the ruins pyramid to explore. As she dropped through the dark, musty air, she clung to the ropes wrapped around her. She sensed she wasn't alone, and not just because she could hear the slithering of snakes below. When her feet touched the ground, she surveyed her surroundings. As her headlamp illuminated one dark corner, she saw an object glimmer. She picked it up and yelled for the team to pull her back to the surface. 
It wasn't until she stepped into sunlight that she realized what she held, a shining crystal skull. The skull was nothing like other Mayan artifacts, which were made from bulky clay. This was crystal, beautifully rounded and polished. When Anna held it up in the light, the sun reflected and refracted through it. The Mayan helpers shouted for joy, some crying with happiness. Frederick couldn't bear to take the item away from them, so he gave them the skull. In the days that followed, the Mayans held elaborate celebrations. Dancers wearing feathers and jaguar skins swayed to drums and sang to the skull. Local priests apparently told Frederick and Anna the crystal was precious to their culture. And it didn't represent death. It was a beacon of life. Anna said her father created the doom story to protect the skull. If the wrong people knew of its real powers, they might do anything to get their hands on it. Plus, she added, Frederick had a sly sense of humor and probably got a good laugh out of his misleading account. According to Anna, the skull was actually a healing stone created to preserve truth and wisdom. Death was just another stage of life, one that allowed humans to travel to other spiritual dimensions. And the skull played an important role in helping people transition from one life into the next. For example, when elder priests were too old to continue their work, they'd perform what was called a willing death ceremony. The priest and their successor would both place their hands on the skull. Then, the elder would pass to the next world. The skull didn't kill them, but helped them complete their journey while transferring their knowledge to the younger person. Clearly, the skull was sacred to the Mayans, which made it especially shocking when they gifted it to Frederick. Supposedly, the chief thought it was only fair since Frederick had given them so much food and medicine. And now that Anna had inherited the crystal and could share her story, she wanted the whole world to know about the Skull of Doom. Her first step was to legitimize the artifact. Because of the skull's anatomical accuracy and superior craftsmanship, some found it difficult to believe that ancient Mayans could have created it without modern tools. So Anna teamed up with an art dealer and restoration expert named Frank Dorland to find out when the skull was made, by whom, and how. Frank convinced Anna to send the skull to an electronic and computer company called Hewlett-Packard, or HP. They already had dedicated labs that experimented with quartz crystal because quartz had the ability to generate an electric charge. Companies like HP used it in their equipment. In 1970, studies on the Skull of Doom began in Santa Clara, California. Since crystal is difficult to carve, the team originally assumed the skull had to be made of several pieces held together with adhesive. However, the first tests found that the entire skull was made of a single piece of pure, natural quartz. Clearly, whoever had carved it had incredible skill. But it was challenging to say when they'd made the skull. Crystal doesn't age, so they couldn't use carbon dating techniques. Instead, the Hewlett-Packard scientists searched for tool marks that might indicate when it was created. 
Shockingly, the examinations revealed no marks. The surface of the crystal appeared to be flawless. The scientists also realized that whoever made the skull carved against the crystal's natural grain. Even with modern technology, working against the grain risks shattering the crystal. In short, the artist who made the skull had almost unnatural skill. One researcher went as far as to say that the skull's craftsmanship was so advanced it shouldn't exist. Frank and the HP team concluded that whoever made the head had rubbed a large piece of quartz down by hand through a process they estimated would have taken around 300 years. These findings baffled archaeologists and crystal artists alike, but they barely scratched the surface of the skull's mysterious elements. After all, the HP scientists didn't attempt to address the paranormal reports associated with the skull, many of which were made by Anna Mitchell Hedges herself. Anna claimed the skull spoke to, protected, and even healed her. She wanted to share its abilities with the rest of the world, and so she opened her home to everyone. Hundreds of people gathered in her living room to see the Skull of Doom, perched on a velvet cushion on the coffee table, right next to a photo of her father. According to visitors, the skull had a positive energy. Others even went further and said the skull healed them. One girl who was extremely ill interacted with the skull for a few weeks. Anna claimed the next time the girl visited, she was strong enough to walk. From headaches to blindness, stories about miracle healing spread far and wide. The more people who interacted with the crystal, the stranger the testimonies became. People reported seeing visions of sea creatures, Mayan rituals, and civilizations on other worlds. In the 1980s, more than a decade after the HP studies, a Canadian psychic named Carol Wilson visited the now-famous skull to her disappointment. Carol didn't see any visions or experience any strange feelings. While her companions examined the skull, she dozed off, bored. But when she woke up two hours later, everyone in the room was staring at her. She'd apparently gone into a trance, and the skull had spoken through her. During Carol's speech, she said the skull had been, quote, formed by beings of a higher intelligence. She, or the skull speaking through her, added that humans grossly misunderstood the world around them and that those higher beings had left the skull behind as a source of knowledge. The outburst amazed Carol and Anna. It seemed like Carol had somehow psychically communicated with the skull in her dreams. For the next several years, Carol continued to work with the crystal while others recorded these sessions. This was how Carol reportedly learned that there were several crystal skulls in the world. If humanity wanted to unlock all of the knowledge they held, they needed to unite the objects. And this narrative actually fit with another story that Anna had heard before. An ancient legend about 13 mythical crystal skulls. The oral tradition had allegedly been passed on through generations of Aztecs, Mayas, and other indigenous Americans. 
It claimed that 13 life-sized crystal skulls had the ability to speak or sing. Together, they held knowledge about the origins, purpose, and destiny of the universe. The wisdom could save the world from destruction, but to unlock the secrets, humanity had to first prove itself worthy. Coming up, a psychic tries to fulfill the 13 Skulls prophecy. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals, like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In 1924, Anna Mitchell Hedges reportedly discovered the Skull of Doom in Belize. Afterward, a series of archaeological and psychic examinations suggested the crystal was part of an ancient prophecy. Anna wasn't the only person who believed in the legend of the Thirteen Skulls. Many years before the Skull of Doom spoke through Carol Wilson, a man named Nick Nosorino began his mission to find and unite the alleged ancient crystals. In the 1930s, eight-year-old Nick saw an image of a skull appear in a mirror. As he stared at it, he claimed a snake emerged from one eye socket and a jaguar appeared from the other. Scared as he was, Nick became transfixed. When he finally tore himself away from the mirror, he told his grandmother what he'd seen. Nick's grandmother suspected the young boy had psychic abilities, and for years afterward, she helped him to develop his visions and strengthen his connection to the paranormal. She also gave him a crystal to wear around his neck, which she believed helped him hone his powers. As he grew up, Nick searched for a purpose, a reason that could explain why he'd been given these abilities. For a while, he consulted with a local police department to help solve crimes. This ended when, in one case, he gave the cops so many specifics about a crime scene that the officers wrongly suspected him of being the murderer. All the while, Nick felt inexplicably drawn to the first psychic image he'd seen, a skull. He knew that somehow it was connected to what fate had in store for him. In the early 1940s, Nick went to Europe to fight in World War II. While traveling in the French countryside, Nick and his friends stopped at a farm to wash up in their well. 
The farmer stormed out to tell them to leave, but stopped when he saw the crystal Nick wore around his neck. The man ran into his house and reappeared with a life-sized crystal skull. According to Nick, as soon as he saw it, he felt an energy he'd never experienced before. The farmer told Nick that the crystal necklace was a sign. He was meant to have the skull. He begged the young soldier to take it before the Gestapo arrived for fear they would steal it. But Nick refused. He was already risking his life as a soldier. He felt like the extra weight of the skull would only endanger him further. And the decision may have been for the best. Nick narrowly escaped a shipwreck a week later in which all of his belongings sank to the bottom of the sea. If he'd taken the skull, it would have been lost forever. Though he never saw the French skull again, Nick had several more encounters with other crystal artifacts. He saw a rose quartz crystal skull with a detachable jawbone in a remote village in Guatemala. He also heard rumors of a large skull with a patch of white on its head. Nick realized that these encounters couldn't be a coincidence and came to believe that his destiny was to unite the sacred 13 crystals. So in 1955, he founded the Society of Crystal Skulls, which worked to track and document the ancient artifacts. Nick led teams using what he called psychic archaeology. Instead of using maps, metal detectors, or other equipment, Nick waited for paranormal items to call out to him before following their energy. In 1959, Nick and a small team wandered through the mountains in Guerrero State, Mexico. While hiking one day, Nick suddenly stopped and pointed at the ground. He and three others started digging. Eventually, they uncovered another crystal skull, which Nick called Shanara. Shanara was made of the same clear quartz as the Skull of Doom. Though larger, it wasn't nearly as anatomically correct. The cheekbones jutted down and out at a harsh angle. Its huge grin looked menacing with large square teeth. The size of the cranium seemed too big for the face. Nick could immediately tell Shanara was special. He could communicate with it through a psychic technique known as scrying, in which a person stares into a mirrored stone like obsidian or crystal until they see images reflected back at them. Over the years, Nick saw visions of the Aztecs and Mayans on Shana Ra's surface. He saw a violent sacrificial ceremony in an ancient temple. Priests would tear out the victim's heart and place the crystal skull inside the chest cavity. He also apparently saw underwater creatures, civilizations underneath the Earth's surface, and flashes of UFOs speeding into the sky. But the skull also served a practical purpose. The legend said all 13 crystals were connected, so Nick used Shana Ra's energy to find the other artifacts. His journey took him across the globe, from ancient temples to the back of someone's closet in Houston, Texas, and a woman named Joanne Parks. In 1973, Joanne took her 12-year-old daughter Diane to an American Tibetan healer and monk named Norbu Chen. 
Diane had bone cancer, and according to doctors, she only had three months to live. Chen used a crystal skull in healing sessions with Diane. We don't know exactly how they went, but based on other patients' accounts, it's likely that Diane stared into its eyes, placed her hand on the head, or meditated in its vicinity. The skull made a strong impression on Joanne, especially once Diane's health started to improve. Diane lived another three years, not months. Once she passed, Chen reportedly hired Joanne as a secretary, although it's unclear why. Whatever the reason, over the next few years, Joanne watched Chen and a group of other Tibetan monks study, bless, and pray over the skull. When she asked Chen where it came from, he told her, from a Mayan temple in Guatemala. The head was discovered in 1924, the same year Anna Mitchell Hedges found the skull of doom. Chen could tell that Joanne was fascinated by the skull, and just before his death in 1977, he offered it to her. He insisted she take it and told her that one day she would learn its purpose. But that day didn't come quickly. At a loss for what to do with the skull, Joanne put it in her closet. About a year later, the Texans started to dream about the head. And within two years, she could apparently hear the crystal talking to her when she was awake as well. Joanne said the skull repeated two phrases, contact the man and I want out of this closet. Thinking she was hallucinating, Joanne shoved the skull's box further towards the back of the closet and buried it under other items. One time after yelling at the skull to leave her alone, it responded by saying it was important to mankind. Then, almost as an offhanded comment, it apparently added, and by the way, my name isn't Skull, it's Max. Needless to say, the interactions were unnerving. For 10 years, Joanne kept Max hidden and feared for her sanity. She didn't know where to go for help until June 1987, when she saw a segment about the Skull of Doom on a TV show about UFOs. It was the first time she'd ever heard about other crystal skulls. Joanne called the TV station, and they gave her Nick Nosorino's phone number. At the time, he was the director of the Society of Crystal Skulls International. Now that Joanne had a lead, she decided to consult the crystal. She asked Max if Nick was the man he wanted her to contact. Max said yes. When Joanne finally called, she was surprised to hear that Nick already knew of Max's existence. He said he'd been psychically aware of the skull since 1949. Shortly after, Nick and Joanne met in person. He assured her she wasn't the only one who heard voices. He recommended letting more people interact with Max so she could see she wasn't alone. This suggestion changed Joanne's life forever. She and Max traveled the world and met with people who needed spiritual, mental, or physical help. She also kept in touch with Nick, who continued his search for more crystal skulls. 
Ultimately, Nick found several heads that were old enough and allegedly had enough psychic energy to be one of the 13. For example, Amy was an amethyst skull that sold for over a million dollars in 2009. The skull E.T. had a face with alien features and a caretaker who claimed it healed her brain tumor. One of the largest known skulls, Amar, had a broad face and is believed to have originated from the Himalayas. But Nick's task became harder as the skulls became more famous. Occultists and psychics bought crystal skulls before he could get his hands on them. Others forged fake heads to meet the growing demand. Luckily, according to Nick, his psychic powers helped him tell the real skulls from the hoaxes, even though he didn't understand how the energy and visions worked. The most popular explanation is surprisingly scientific and actually ties back to Hewlett Packard's Skull of Doom research in 1970. As we discussed before, the computer and electronic company used quartz in their electronics. If the skulls came from higher beings as the legends claimed, perhaps these creators knew how to translate electric information into dreams, visions, voices, and feelings. Occultists even have theories on how this works. The answer lies in the pineal gland, or as metaphysicians call it, the third eye. This is a small, pinecone-shaped organ in the very middle of the brain. Officially, the pineal gland synthesizes melatonin, which controls sleep patterns, mood, and metabolism. However, psychic traditions suggest the gland serves as a metaphysical connection between physical and spiritual worlds. If the pineal gland could pick up the electrical pulses from the skulls, perhaps it interpreted them as sensations, dreams, or hallucinations. The visions probably weren't random. Just like a computer chip, if you provided a particular input, the skull should produce a specific output. Nick tested this idea by changing the variables when he interfaced with the crystal skulls. He figured that he could trigger particular visions with specific circumstances, and it seemed to work when he used color. For example, if Nick scryed in a blue-lit room, he would apparently see one image. If he moved into a red light, he'd see a different one. This color study supported the third eye theory. Light and color can affect the pineal gland. For example, blue lights keep people awake because it suppresses melatonin. If color can alter the organ on a physical level, using Nick's logic, it could also change the gland on a metaphysical level. Nick's color studies encouraged occult communities. Many people considered this proof that the skulls really did contain messages from their creators. Now, they just needed to uncover who had coded the information in the first place. Coming up, occultists and archaeologists collide in a London museum. Now, back to the story. From the Skull of Doom to Max to Shana Ra, each crystal skull brought a new wave of psychic messages, archaeological information, and scientific theories. In the late 20th century, 
everyone had an explanation about their purpose, and there was just as much speculation about who had made them. Dr. Jaap van Etten, Ph.D., believed that extraterrestrials created the skulls and delivered them to humanity. He wrote that aliens placed the gifts near places of spiritual significance, like Egypt's Great Pyramids and Stonehenge. Modern-day experts have no archaeological explanation for how these skulls, with similar designs and made of the same material, ended up scattered around the world. But extraterrestrials could have spread the skulls around easily, and presumably some form of advanced alien technology could allow them to create the skulls without leaving tool marks. Nick Nosarino accepted the extraterrestrial explanation, to a degree. He constantly saw aliens in his psychic visions and believed that the skulls attracted UFO activity. However, he also saw visions of Atlantis, an ancient princess, and people who lived under the Earth's surface. Nick thought there was simply no way to tell which images showed the skull's creators, and so it was impossible to say where exactly they'd come from. But an archaeologist named Dr. Jane McLaren Walsh disagreed. Dr. Walsh wasn't an occultist. She was the primary researcher on Mexican pre-Columbian archaeology for the Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History. In 1992, someone sent her an anonymous package. Inside was a crystal skull. A handwritten letter said the head was an Aztec artifact purchased in Mexico in 1960. At the time, there were two other life-sized crystal skulls on display in museums, the British Museum skull and the Paris skull. It was unbelievable that someone would simply drop such a valuable artifact on the Smithsonian's doorstep. But Dr. Walsh brushed aside her concerns. She didn't believe the skull had any special powers, good or bad. She was just excited to examine such a beautiful and controversial artifact. The crystal was large, 31 pounds compared to the more typical 10 to 15 pound skulls. It looked very similar to the skull of doom, though cloudier and more coarse. The jawbone was attached to the cranium, just like the one at the British Museum. Beyond that, though, Dr. Walsh had some serious questions about the skull's authenticity. Most supposedly came from ancient civilizations, particularly Mayan or Aztec societies. But Dr. Walsh was an expert in pre-Columbian archaeology, and the skull didn't look like any Aztec art style she was familiar with. It didn't even look pre-Columbian. It was too rounded, the tooth and temple depressions were usual, and as a whole, it was too big. Plus, there were no records of its discovery on any archaeological digs. Normally, in excavations, experts make careful note of each specimen they uncover, but every so-called ancient skull seemed to appear from nowhere. Even the Skull of Doom wasn't listed in the Labantun excavation logs, private journals, or letters from team members. And Anna Mitchell Hedges had described a celebration that occurred with the Mayans, so the lack of any written record raised red flags. 
British archaeologist Norman Hammond investigated the mystery by combing through the excavation's history. He learned that Anna couldn't have found the skull in Lebontune in 1924 because she wasn't there. Anna didn't show up in any photographs, journals, or letters. She had clearly fabricated her story about finding one of the most famous crystal skulls. The willing death ceremony, the Lebontune discovery site, the estimated age of 3,600 years old, all of it was suddenly called into question. Even more alarmingly, Anna's father, Frederick Mitchell Hedges, apparently hadn't found the skull in Belize. Letters and a receipt proved that he'd bought the skull from an antique dealer in 1944, nearly 20 years after the excavation. Anna tried to explain this away, claiming that her father loaned the head to a friend. Apparently, the friend's son thought it was for sale and put it up for auction. Frederick had no choice but to purchase it back. Which was quite a convenient retelling. Historians believed Frederick was inspired by an adventure story called The Crystal Skull, which came out in 1936. He bought the Skull of Doom and fabricated its origin story as part of an elaborate hoax. Perhaps the explorer wanted an exciting legacy, or maybe it was his sense of humor that Anna had talked about. Either way, after all this came out, Anna refused to change her account of what happened. Dr. Walsh didn't care about Anna's testimony because she wasn't trying to debunk anything. She only wanted to learn more about her anonymous Smithsonian crystal. And if she could learn where the auctioneer had gotten the Skull of Doom, maybe she could discover the origin of hers, too. And when that avenue wasn't fruitful, Dr. Walsh searched for the sales records from skulls currently located in Paris and London. Dr. Walsh found that an ethnologist named Alphonse Pinard had donated his collection, including the Paris skull, to a French museum in 1878. The British Museum had acquired their skull from Tiffany and Company in 1898. However, both Alphonse and Tiffany and Company had bought their skulls from the same man, a French archaeologist named Eugene Bobin. Long before he began selling crystal skulls, Boban sailed from Paris to Mexico City in 1857, seeking adventure. He fell in love with the country and was widely respected for his expertise in pre-Columbian artifacts. Boban was a natural and curious archaeologist and sold his discoveries to support himself. However, museum experts questioned the authenticity of these goods on several occasions, these issues were often swept under the rug since Boban had a reputation as an expert in the field. But during his time in Mexico, several archaeologists and museum curators accused him of fraud. After 16 years, Boban ran out of money and moved back to France. That was when he sold Alphonse several of the crystal skulls. However, these heads weren't in his archaeological logs. They only appeared in his records after he arrived in Paris. Most damning, however, was a letter that art dealer Wilson Wilberforce Blake wrote to the Smithsonian curator in 1886. 
Blake said that a Frenchman named Boban had tried to sell crystal skulls to Mexico's National Museum under false pretenses. In 1900, Boban went on record during an interview and said that many of the crystal skulls were fakes. He added that someone had, quote, palmed off the skulls on experts at the best museums in Europe. Many critics, including Dr. Walsh, believed this quote was one final joke from Boban. He was bragging that he tricked the best archaeologists in the world and gotten away with it. Evidence was piling up that the skulls were fake. But still, Dr. Walsh didn't drop the issue. She wanted to find where the skulls were created, not who had sold them. Dr. Walsh decided to get in touch with as many crystal skull owners as possible to study the heads side by side. She reached out to anyone who owned one of the infamous artifacts. Both Nick Nocerino and Joanne Parks agreed to let Dr. Walsh examine their precious crystals. They were confident in what they learned from the visions and dreams and wanted to know more. Anna Mitchell Hedges, on the other hand, declined. But it didn't matter. Dr. Walsh got approval to study the Paris and British Museum skulls, along with another privately owned crystal. By 2005, Dr. Walsh ran three main studies. First, she had searched for tool marks with more advanced technology than Hewlett-Packard had access to 35 years prior. Using silicone molds and high-powered microscopes, Dr. Walsh found that all the museum skulls were created not by hand, but with tools from the 19th century. An X-ray test found her anonymous Smithsonian skull was made after the 1950s, and other tests revealed the British Museum crystal hadn't come from Mexico as previously thought. It was from Brazil. This set off Dr. Walsh's alarm bells. Throughout the 19th and 20th century, a German town called Idar Oberstein had been famous for carving intricate crystal pieces. For nearly 100 years, the tradesmen relied on quartz from Brazil. All the pieces seemed to fit. The crystals weren't ancient, they weren't Mexican, and they weren't part of some prophecy. These studies embarrassed the museums that had proudly displayed the crystal skulls. However, the strangest results were those from Shanara and Max. As the examinations drew to a close, a British museum representative approached Nick, Joanne, and some documentarians who were interested in the skulls. Everyone was excited to hear the results. However, the representatives said the staff had been given strict orders not to comment. Confused, Nick and Joanne asked why, and the officials told them that they never ran tests on Shanara or Max. This puzzled Joanne and Nick, who had both watched scientists take plastic molds of their skulls and examine them under microscopes. It seemed unlikely that the museum would collect data but fail to analyze the results. It's possible the museum did perform the studies, but found something that suggested the skulls came from an illegal dig. Or perhaps the team made embarrassing errors and didn't want to admit them. Or maybe 
the museum found something that the world simply wasn't ready for. After all, the ancient legend says that the skulls will only reveal their secrets when humanity proves itself worthy. And who's to say that's happened yet? Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Kit Fitzgerald, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify. Spotify.